So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 16. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Eretus had the city of the Democenes guarded in order to arrest me but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from, 
from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, it's great to be with you guys today and to be able to share from, uh, from God's Word. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying 2 Corinthians. I know I have as I've been uh, listening along uh, at Harrington Park uh, with Ben and uh, with Jono as they've been preaching through uh, this passage. Uh, over the past 25 years that I've been a Christian, um, I've had the privilege of hearing lots of people's personal testimonies about how they've come to follow Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. It's amazing to hear how God has worked in people's lives to bring them to faith and to praise God and to remember again that when it comes to uh, someone becoming Christian, the only thing we ever bring is our sin and foolishness in that sense, right? Uh, the trick with a, a personal testimony, so to speak, though, is uh, to make sure that you glorify and praise Jesus and not yourself. Uh, that the testimony is about God's goodness to the speaker and not how lucky God is to have you on his team, uh, so to speak. Uh, that's why testimonies are powerful, aren't they? Uh, we're able to get the balance right when we, when we hear a good testimony between sharing someone's story and pointing the hearers to who Jesus is and God's grace and mercy. And it's often in those stories when we think about it that we have this recurring theme of weakness. Uh, weakness, which is really the word that's repeated a number of times in the passage today, uh, is a concept that we hear in personal testimonies. Uh, you may hear people say things like, I tried to do things my own way, but it realized that it wasn't working. Weakness. So I turned to God. As I was driving along, I felt empty and alone, so I pulled the car over and I wept. And in that moment, I called out to God. Although I've grown up knowing the promises of God, I realized that my life and actions didn't match up with my words, weakness, that I needed to change, that I needed to take God more seriously. And it's in those moments of weakness in people's lives that we see God powerfully move, right? We see His grace capture someone's heart, and in turn, they move to repentance and faith. And it's that movement of weakness to power that I think we see displayed in the Apostle Paul and particularly in our passage today. In this little section of 2 Corinthians from chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11, we've seen the danger of the false apostles who have come to be a part of the Corinthian church there. Not only were they questioning Paul's authority and his legitimacy as a, an apostle, but his, the ministry of the, the false apostles or the super apostles was one of deception in chapter 11, verse 3. And in the end, they were proclaiming another Jesus and another gospel entirely. And so what Paul does to help the Corinthians do is, uh, in foolishness, he decides to join in and do some boasting of his own. Uh, what we have to see, though, is that unlike the super apostles, Paul's boast is not in 
the spectacular. It's not in gifts, visions, or his commission as an apostle. Rather, what does he boast in in the passage? He boasts about his weakness and the power of God that is at work. So if you want to follow along, uh, we'll work through the passage. We're up to uh, Paul's foolish boasting in uh, verse 16 through to the uh, end, the beginning, I should say, of verse 21. If you've got a Bible, please follow along. So Paul begins by talking about the nature of his foolish boasting. Have a look with me, verse 16 uh, of chapter 11. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. Uh, One of my favourite TV shows growing up uh, was The A-Team. And uh, my favourite character was Mr T. There he is there. Uh, And what was Mr T's famous line, if you know the show? I pity the fool. He would say it over and over again. Well, maybe it wasn't Mr T, after all, who came up with the famous line. Maybe it was the Apostle Paul. Paul seems to call himself a fool for joining in and doing a little bit of boasting. Paul calls the Corinthians fools for putting up with the false apostles who, verse 20, enslave and abuse them. And Paul calls the false apostles fools for the way they speak and treat the Corinthians themselves. Fools, fools, fools. Everyone's a fool. Pity the fool, as Mr. T would say. But Paul's boasting and foolishness is different Um, As we've gone through 2 Corinthians, we've seen three times that he has already boasted. Uh, He's boasted about his life and his conduct towards the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in holiness and sincerity that are from God. We've done so, not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. That's his first boast. He's boasted about his authority as an apostle in chapter 10, verse 8. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I'll not be ashamed of it. And I think most importantly, in chapter 10, verse 13, he gives us some context for what he does here. We, however, verse 13 will not boast beyond proper limits, but will continue our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. So if he's going to boast, Paul's saying here, he's going to boast within proper limits and in the field that God has assigned to him, which is why he boasts about being a servant of Christ and he boasts about his personal weakness. Have a look with me, verse 21, the second half of verse 21. What anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. 
Paul says that he is the real deal. He is the Evangel Holyfield of boxing in that sense. Don't question my upbringing and education. Sure, I was born outside of Israel, but I grew up in Palestine. I was taught by Gamaliel, I can never say his name right, Gamaliel, and educated according to the strict view of the patriarchal law in Jerusalem itself. I am a Hebrew. Don't question my connection to God's covenant. I'm an Israelite. Don't question my connection to Abraham. I'm one of his descendants. And don't you dare question if I'm a true servant of Christ, for I am more. Of course, Paul doesn't say it like that, though, there, does he? I'm not sure if you knew, but someone probably was writing while Paul was saying these words aloud. He would have had a scribe. And I have this picture of Paul at this point as the scribe was furiously copying down his words. Paul was probably walking around the room, putting his hands on his head, throwing his hands in the air. What am I doing talking like this? He was probably thinking, I'm out of my mind. But it's at this point that Paul teaches the Corinthians and us what he means when he says he is a better servant of Christ. And there's that long list there that we could spend time reading, but let's have a look though. He's been in prison. He's had 40 lashes minus one. He's been beaten with a rod, stone, shipwrecked. He's been on the move. He's been in danger from rivers and bandits from his own countrymen in the city, all over the place. What qualifies Paul for his work, for his life, what qualifies him as an apostle is his hard work, his persecution, his abuse, his danger, and his discomfort. That's what qualifies him. That's what he'll boast about in that sense. But above all, have a look at verse 28. What's his chief weakness there? His chief weakness is his daily pressure of concern for the churches and for those who are a part of his church. It says he's anxious. The old NIV says, I face daily the pressure of my concern. It's probably more literally my anxious concern for these people there. His daily concern for his churches. And not only that, his care for individuals who themselves are weak or who are led into sin. So much so that Paul burns inwardly and is angry towards those who lead people astray into sin. That's his biggest weakness in that sense and his largest boast. What makes him a really good servant of Christ is that he cares for his churches and he cares for Christians. And that's what qualifies him to be a servant of Christ and that's what he will boast in. And you can see how different that is to the super apostles, right? What were they boasting about all the time? How spiritual they were, how wonderful their spiritual gifts were, how well they could talk, how good looking they were. See, it's not about being a good speaker. It's not about having a successful ministry. It's not the churches that Paul had planted. It's not his spiritual gifts. And as we'll see in a sec, it's not even his visions that make him qualified. His boast is his weakness of his ministry. The fragility of his life and his concern for the godliness of the churches that he's been a part of. Now, if I was to join a church and I was looking for a pastor, I'd like Paul, right? He's the guy who's going to care for the church, right? He's the guy who's going to care about my life. I want to be a minister of Christ like that guy as well in that sense. Paul is the model of what it means to be a minister of Christ. He goes on though in verse 30 to talk about his own personal weakness. 
And this is the point that Paul takes it even more personally, you could say. It's one thing to talk about your ministry. It's another thing to share about your personal weakness for everyone to see. Chapter 11, verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He says it again in chapter 12, verse 5, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. It seems he wants to provide us two examples, the first one being lowered in a basket from the city of Damascus, and then his thorn in the flesh in verse 7. The basket incident is funny, isn't it? Imagine being lowered in a basket out the side of the city in the middle of the night. How degrading. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. Paul had been preaching. He'd been preaching after he'd just been converted that Jesus is the Son of God in the synagogue and he'd been proving to all the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And this infuriated the Jews and with the local authorities, they plotted to kill him. But Paul escapes through the basket in the wall. Successful ministry one minute, going out of the city the next. The episode must have left a mark on Paul, right? Acts chapter 9 says that Paul increased in strength and confounded the Jews. And then later that day, he fled from the city at night, alone, wandering in the dark. Success to perceive failure, all in the matter of days. He must have felt weak and a failure at that point. His greatest weakness, though, is what he goes on to talk about, which is his thorn in the flesh. The thorn that was given to Paul by God because of this vision and revelation. Have a look with me, chapter 12, verses 2 to 4. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexcusable things, things that not man, that man is not permitted to tell. This is a strange way to talk about it, right? This is a weird passage. It's probably why Gav didn't want to preach on it, right? This is a strange way to talk. Who talks about themselves in the third person? No one, right? My daughter does it and I'm trying to discourage her from doing it. It's pretentious, I think, to talk about yourself in the third person. But what I think Paul is doing it, and the the reason that he's doing it is because his point is not that he had the vision, right? The point is what happens because of it. Paul shares this not to make himself to be some special Christian or because he thinks it will add to his status like the false apostles would, But rather, he tells the story so that he can boast in his weakness, verse 5, so no one will think more of him than is warranted. For many Christians today, they have a spiritual experience and they want to talk about the spiritual experience for the sake of themselves sometimes. That's not what Paul wants to do here. He doesn't revel in his gifts, his vision. It's not about him. It's about God. It's about weakness. And so he boasts in his weakness because of this vision. 
Of course, though, we want to know about what this vision is and how it works. And so up on the screen, I've got a little summary here of my thoughts. It's my version. I've put it there. This is not definitive in that sense. Uh, When I was reading about this, there's probably many interpretations that people have. I think this, as I've weighed the evidence and looked at it, are some of the things that we can say for certain, I think, for a whole lot of different reasons, and I'd love to talk with you more after, if you'd like. From the evidence of the passage and from other passages around, we want to say that Paul still remembers when it happened. It says there it happened 14 years ago, verse 2, which was probably around 43 AD, sometime between when Paul was converted and his arrival in Antioch. And this vision happened to him in a very sudden or quick way. There's this 10 years of Paul's life that we know nothing about, where he went to Arabia, essentially, and and he was there, and he had some time by himself, and it happened in that time there. Secondly, Paul isn't sure about what happened to his body when he had this experience, though he is sure it was a rational experience as he heard things and he remembers it. It's not that it was just some ephemeral thing in that sense. Uh, When we read the passage, I think what we need to do is we need to read verse 2 and verse 3 and 4 in parallel to understand what the third heaven and what paradise is. Um, The parallelism of the verse leads me to think that we should think of the third heaven and paradise together. They're not separate. The third heaven should be understood as a reference to the highest heaven in the Jewish understanding of how the heavens worked. The place within which paradise resides. So there's this third heaven and within the third heaven is this place called paradise. And so as we think about what the third heaven is, the emphasis is on height. Whilst paradise, which we hear about Jesus on the cross with the thief when Jesus says today you'll be with me in paradise and in Revelation chapter 2 is the place or the depth where the tree of life is present and where Jesus lives and blesses his people who are with him. This paradise or heavenly garden, the Eden above, is a place where Jesus grants immortality and life to believers. Together, when we put that together then, Paul seems to have visited this hidden paradise the dwelling place of the righteous dead, which is located within the third heaven in the house of God. Pretty clear, right? What happened, though, was that Paul heard inexpressible things that he isn't allowed to talk about. And so in response to this, Paul's point is not to make us marvel at what happened. Rather, his point is to commend his weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Have a look in your Bible. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. Again, we lack the details. We don't know what the thorn is, and I think that's because we're not supposed to know. Paul, again, doesn't reveal all the information, because the point, again, is to not get fixated on what the thorn is, though there are 17 suggestions, at least, that I've read about, about what the thorn might be. Again, from the passage, though, what do we see here? It was given by God as a direct consequence to the vision in verse 7. It caused Paul pain. 
physically, psychologically, and he asked several times for it to be taken away. It was permanent, and God wouldn't take it away, despite Paul's prayers in verses 8 to 9. It was humbling and designed to keep Paul from becoming conceited. And it caused Paul to feel weak, yet it caused Paul at the same time to boast, verse 9, and it was a source of pleasure. The climax of the passage is verses 9 and 10, though. Have a look, verse 9 and 10. But he said to me, and I think we could say it's the Lord Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What does Paul boast in again here? He boasts in his weakness. He's learned the hard way that God's promise, my grace is sufficient to you, is true. And that because of Christ's power, which rests on him, God's power is over him, protects him, and is with him in the midst of his life. Which is why he can delight in weakness. He can say, when I am weak, then I am strong. And you can no doubt see why the Corinthians thought Paul was an idiot. Who boasts in their weakness in that way, right? As we think about how this passage applies to us, I've got two suggestions that you can see at the bottom of the handout there. For those of us involved in full-time vocational ministry, I think this passage has lots to say about how we should think about ourselves and our weaknesses, what priorities servants of Christ should pursue for their churches and their ministry. But I think it also speaks to all of us who are involved in leadership in some way, whether it's vocational ministry, whether you're a Bible study leader, a youth leader, a kids leader, whatever it might be. How do we think about success? What does success look like in our ministry? And how does this idea of weakness and delighting in weakness fit into that? What does it mean to be a successful Bible study leader? What does it mean to be a successful church planter? What does it mean to be a successful kids leader? How does this idea of weakness, delighting in weakness, God's grace shaping us fit? Because Paul's life and ministry, I think, is an example and a model to us. The most powerful, gospel-centered ministry will happen when we delight in our strengths, no. When we are really strong, no. When we have smoke machines and lights out the front, no. Powerful gospel ministry happens when we trust in what? God's grace. And his power rests upon us. Every church culture has its problems, right? In our evangelical culture, one of the problems that we've had from time to time is that we have celebrity pastors. Successful ministries, books, conferences, 
they can lead us to think that God is obviously more at work in that place than our place or wherever it might be. There can always be a new thing. There's always a new program. It's always the next book or the next course. If only we can get ahead of the wave, then we'll be successful, right? Maybe success, though, is a faithful team working together, preaching Christ, trusting in God for his provision, discipling people in the gospel, seeking the lost and praying for God's leading in all of it. Maybe that's success. But what about our individual lives? What about weakness? These words of the Lord that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, are not only words to Paul or to Gav, they apply to all of us. Whatever experiences and circumstances of life that make us feel powerless, today as the children of God's, God's grace is sufficient for us all, right? We desperately want to be in control. We want to take charge. We want to plan our destinies. But sooner or later, despite the power that, might, that we might have or that we might perceive, our intellect, our health, our wealth, our influence or position will become powerless and will be vulnerable. Just yesterday at school, a dear friend of mine died. He was found dead on his lounge yesterday morning. Many years of life ahead, we would have thought. But it's in these moments of weakness when we humble ourselves and we cry out to the Lord in our powerlessness that the grace of Christ is shown and the power of Christ rests upon us. See, I think sometimes we think being weak means being passive. I don't think Jesus is calling us through his grace to be passive, though, to just sit there and saying, suck it up. I don't think we're supposed to sit in our weakness, our resignation and defeat. That's not what Paul does here, right? Rather, in God's grace, power, love and mercy, God calls us to acceptance of our weakness, to acknowledge it like Paul and to trust him. Trust is active it's not passive there's that acknowledgement that I'm a weak person that I can't do it myself but I see God and his power and grace and I reach out and I trust him I am active in my faith that God's power his grace can do all things that it can work in my life and in my ministry so if you're feeling weak Boast in your weakness and call out to God. His grace is sufficient to you. If you're a small business owner trying to balance the books, not sure how it's going to get there, God's grace is sufficient for you. If you're struggling with a baby, feeding's not going well, long nights, God's grace is sufficient for you. If you're struggling with illness, God's grace is sufficient for you. If you're trying to be a Christian at school and it's not going well, people are mocking you, God's grace is sufficient for you. Whatever the circumstances we find ourselves, Jesus says, 
And he continues to say, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in weakness. So can I keep encouraging you to rest in God's grace, which is sufficient, to actively trust in him as we go and as we minister and as we share and as we live in this place. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your grace is sufficient, that in weakness we are strong. And we pray that you would rest on us, that your power would be a part of our lives and that we might not boast in who we are or our gifts, but that we might boast in you, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.